would have thought we'd remember the day in part because of what Harry T. Byrne wore. The National Constitution Center tells the tale. On August 18, 1920, the U.S. legislature voted on a motion to table or delay any ratification vote. It seemed as if the anti-suffragists had enough votes to delay a 19th Amendment vote after Harry T. Byrne arrived wearing a red rose, and he voted then to table the amendment. But another representative, Banks Turner, switched sides during the roll call, leaving the vote deadlocked and moving the ratification vote forward. The suffragists would need one more vote to make the 19th Amendment the law of the land. And what happened stunned the legislature. Then, early in the voting, Byrne, who came from a conservative district and wore the red rose on his lapel, surprised everyone when he said in a clear voice, I, when asked if he would vote to ratify the amendment. Byrne had a letter in his suit pocket from his mother in which she asked him to be a good boy and vote for the amendment. When Turner also voted in favor of the ratification, the 70-year-old battle for suffrage was over. That from the National Constitution Center. Harry T. Byrne had in his pocket, close to his heart, no doubt, a letter from his mother, as we just heard. Hers was an oh-so-powerful letter because her son dutifully changed his critical vote on that August 18th day. And the rest, well, we know, is history. And it wasn't just the contents of pockets that were seen as having power, it was the pockets themselves. For much of the 19th century, in keeping with the edicts of popular and high fashion, women were generally disallowed pockets in the modern sense of a pouch sewn into clothing. Cultural historian Stephen Connor argues that internal pockets mark one of the most striking differences between male and female clothing since the end of the 18th century. Trousers have pockets, while women's clothes continued to be conspicuously and systematically unprovided with them. As a result, the question of who gets pockets and how becomes more than a footnote of fashion history the pocket has to do with enhancing mobility in public, and that would include the ability to carry contents, such as money especially, but also calling cards, watches, keys, and perhaps even a letter from your mother. That from Form and Deformity, The Trouble with Victorian Pockets by Christopher Todd Matthews in Victorian Studies 2010. The exhibition New Century, New Woman explores American women's new personal and political freedoms at the turn of the 20th century through the lens of fashion. Between 1890 and 1920, many women challenged the expectation that their role should be limited to home and family. This new woman pursued employment and college education in increasing numbers and campaigned for suffrage and social reform. Honoring the 100th anniversary of women's suffrage in 2020, this exhibition at the Allentown Art Museum offers a historical perspective on issues such as gender roles, fashion, and professional self-presentation that continue to resonate today. 
Claire McCree is assistant curator at the Allentown Museum, and she did the curating of this exhibition that will be up through April 18th. We had a chance to talk with her by phone about the rich and varied exhibition. The museum has over 8,000 textiles in its collection, and it's a really rich and varied collection, especially considering that, you know, we're more of a mid-sized museum. It's a really exciting breadth and depth. We have textiles from five continents and from the fifth century to the present, uh, most of that concentrated in the 1700s through the 20th century. And we have one of the strengths of the collection is that it is very global and has representation of a lot of different global textile traditions, especially women's needlework, lace making, and also American printed silks from the 20s and 30s. And we're actually presenting another exhibition this summer that will be focused on global bed covers and bed hangings, which will be a really fun chance just to show, you know, some of this, this real variety we have in our holdings. Of course, anything that you have under your roof has to be conserved and preserved and taken care of and stored in safe ways. How specially does this collection have to be treated? Yeah, that's a great question. I guess one thing to know about textiles is that they're very light sensitive. And so in order to make sure that we're preserving the textiles while also allowing public access to them as much as possible, we have to limit the amount of time that they're in our galleries. And we usually don't keep textile exhibitions on view for more than a few months, maybe up to six months. And then they have to rest in storage for a period of time after that so that there's not light damage from that exposure. And so so that's one reason it, it can be more involved to do textile exhibitions because of the need for turnover and also the, the need for mounting, especially, you know, with this particular exhibition with getting all of the garments onto dress forms was quite a challenge just dealing with historical body shapes and, and all of that. And, and to speak more to the storage, we also, we're lucky enough to have recently installed hanging compact storage for our, for our costume collection, which is great because it lets us hang more of the garments that are sturdy enough for that treatment, which prevents creasing. And it's, and it's great as a curator because it's kind of like walking into your closet. You can open it up and just see a lot of things from the collection at once. But most of our textiles are stored flat in boxes folded with tissue paper to help prevent creasing and preserve the textiles. What was the impetus then for this particular exhibition? We can guess because it was launched in 2020, and we know that was mm-hmm. an important year. Definitely. Yeah, part of the inspiration for the exhibition had to do with 2020 being the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote. And so, you know, it was exciting to be able to focus on women's fashion and connect it to social change and political activism in this way. Yeah, and this is also, this is an era of fashion in our collection that we haven't really explored in depth before. Our costume collection It's a relatively new area that's been accumulated since about 2009 when we first received a really major gift. And so we haven't done as much with this this time period at the turn of the century yet. In the course of the last year when the anniversary 
was marked, people who have been looking at the photos of the marchers, the women out in the streets in Washington, for example. And we did learn, too, that colors, for example, for the suffrage movement were so important. And white, we know, when we saw in our Congress the women wearing white when they were being sworn in or that kind of thing. So there is symbolism in in much of what we're going to experience. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there's actually a section in the exhibition that focuses on the lingerie dress, which is, that's a name for a type of dress that was in fashion in the early 1900s. It was usually cotton, white, all over white day dress that women wore in the warmer months and very popular, also very delicate and feminine with lots of lace and embroidery and really this expression of kind of traditional delicate femininity. And one thing that's really interesting is that in this period, you do see the suffrage movement appropriating the color white, which, you know, in general has these cultural associations of modesty and purity, femininity as well, delicacy, and using that as a color for women to dress in for their marches, both in the UK and in the United States. And so a lot of suffragists are wearing suits or shirtwaist, which is like a blouse and skirt ensemble. But some women also do wear lingerie dresses. And I think there's, you know, an interesting connection there with this kind of ideal of Edwardian femininity, you know, kind of a frou-frou garment, and then the suffrage movement, which is really pushing back against these norms. And you start at the end of the Mm -hmm. 19th century and you take us into the 20th century. So where do we begin? It sounds like it's not necessarily chronological that you have kind of thematic segments of the exhibition. How did you decide to mount it in that sense? Yeah, that's a great question. I think our collection isn't necessarily suited to doing a strict timeline And also just that's something that's also been done before in various ways. And so for both of those reasons, I thought it made sense to go with something that's more thematic. And so when you walk into the exhibition, you see a section which focuses on the idea of femininity in women's clothing at the turn of the century. And so that includes clothing that ranges in date from about um, 1900 to 1912, And you get a sense, that's kind of an orientation to this idea of historically how clothing used things like trim and this very voluptuous silhouette in the early 20th century to create this, you know, very exaggerated, almost hyper-feminine look, which was full of these markers of traditionally historically markers of femininity like lace, applied bows, texture, pattern, all of these all of these elements together creating this very intense exaggerated feminine effect and there is also one section that's on your other side as you enter that does provide a brief timeline that kind of orients you to the different silhouettes that were popular in this era so it's only a total of 5 garments but still gives a little bit of a sense of you know how things are changing from around 1900 when women are women are trying to create what's called the monobosom or S-curve silhouette, where you have a really full, exaggerated bust line and this idea that the chest is pushed kind of forwards and the hips backwards. So there's kind of this graceful curve in the silhouette and 
and that the bosom is very full and kind of hangs almost to the waist of the garment, which is very small. And so that type of silhouette in 1900, you see over the next couple decades, a gradual movement away from that and movement towards, in the early 20s, a much more modern, much more simple silhouette. And, you know, thinking about just the freedom of movement that that offers, the functionality, and also this idea that to be feminine, you don't have to be wearing, you know, something that's covered in bows necessarily. There are different ways to to define femininity in this era. And the design of the exhibition is really interesting. It really focuses on this black and white color palette, which, you know, has to do with the pieces in our collection that we wanted to show kind of tending in that direction anyway. And then also this idea of kind of undermining the very, you know, frilly, frou-frou nature of some of these garments with having this more hard edge in the design with the black and white, the dramatic contrast. And we also were able to include large banners that are based loosely on the design of the placards women carried in labor and suffragist demonstrations of the era that include quotes from women of the era talking about kind of the relationship between fashion and politics in this context. So, you know, it's a really fun and interesting aspect of this exhibition. Where are these items of clothing coming from? Are they being made by women themselves? Are they on store racks? Are designers doing the work? And how do they know the demand is there for this more simple, streamlined way? How do the purveyors of women's clothing get the signals that it's time to make more suits rather than more lingerie dresses? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think something that we still think about today, you know, how does, how do we know what's going to be in style? And I think in our collection, we don't have a lot of couture, which is high-end, custom-made Parisian fashion. And in this era, at the turn of the century, the Parisian fashion houses, and to some extent, British fashion designers as well, were kind of leading in terms of working with wealthy clients who had the means, you know, sometimes to travel from the U.S. to, to France to, to purchase their wardrobes for a season. And so these kinds of, these designers were working with styles that would be illustrated in fashion plates and then disseminated in women's magazines, which become really popular and, you know, really explode just in accessibility and the affordability of printing images in the late 1800s. And so a lot of women, for the average, you know, middle-class woman looking at plates from a fashion magazine might be how they decided what they wanted to wear or were interested in. And so a lot of our collection is largely kind of middle market, more average average woman's wardrobe rather than designer fashions. And so in this era, if you were middle class, it wasn't unusual to, you know, to still have a dressmaker who might make up some clothing for you. That was something that today seems very, you know, having bespoke tailoring is so high end. But in the early 20th century, that's something that was much more accessible and much more common. So that was certainly one option, and your dressmaker would probably know the latest styles, or you might consult with her about what you wanted made. And some women certainly did make garments for themselves. Sewing was much more of a ubiquitous skill in this era, and if you went to a department store, you'd be able to buy fabric by the yard for making up your wardrobe. 
so the department stores, they really come about in the mid-1800s and initially are selling a lot of women's accessories. Women's clothing in this era is so precisely fitted that there isn't really a lot of off-the-rack clothing for women. But one exception to that is are things like the shirtwaist blouse, which because it's a loose-fitting blouse that would be cinched in at the waist and tucked into your skirt, that was something that was generally ready-made and, you know, was really available across social classes. And I think also it's just lovely to see the work, for example, you mentioned the laces on some of the pieces and so on, and see the care with which these pieces, I'm sure, have been made, especially if some of them were handmade. And we think about clothing made overseas today, but you remind us of the situation a century ago. Yeah, I think there's there's really amazing detail in in the garments in this exhibition, and certainly, you know, a century ago, this is an era when people invest more in their wardrobes and maintain their wardrobes to a higher standard, whereas today, clothing is much more inexpensive and affordable, but on the flip side, it's also lower quality, you know, tends to have a shorter shelf life and doesn't get the same kind of attention and care and handwork that you see in the past. And, you know, especially with the shirtwaist blouses, which are one of the few things that are being ready-made commonly in this era, that you do have, you know, sort of sweatshop conditions with a lot of young immigrant women making these kinds of garments. And so I think it's really interesting to think about that a lot of these women who make the shirtwaists also wear them themselves. And so it's something that they're also styling themselves in a way they want to be seen as ladies and taken seriously, especially when they're leading movements like the shirtwaist strike of 1909. And certainly that brings to mind the tragic Triangle Shirtwaist Factory fire when so many lives were lost. 1911, I think. Yeah, and I think thinking about fashion in this era offers us a window into all of these different aspects and thinking about how women, not only middle-class white women, which is kind of, for a long time, that was kind of what was seen as the new woman. That was her identity. But also looking at working-class women who are recent immigrants and also women of color and how they're taking advantage of either dressing very fashionably and very feminine styles to to subvert racial stereotypes and, you know, in addition to dealing with the gender stereotypes, it's also racial stereotypes. And so, you know, self-consciously using their appearance to, to advance their agenda, to be taken seriously in this context. I think, you know, it's really interesting to see what different people of this era have done with fashion. What about the influence of male wear? Was there an effort on the part of some of the suffragists, for example, or some of those who are in the forefront for women's equality? Were they adapting such things as the tailored look because they could then make a statement with their clothing? Yeah. I mean, women's fashions, men's fashion borrowings have come into women's fashions over centuries, but this particular period at the the turn of the 20th century is unique because of the shirtwaist blouse, which I just mentioned. So that's a woman's blouse. It's based on the men's collared button-down shirt, and it just becomes phenomenally popular and really closely identified with the new woman, in part because it is something that's seen as, 
you know, a little bit more masculine, and sometimes in the styling, some women might wear it with a bow tie and a boater hat, which were also borrowings from menswear, styled in a very feminine way, but, you know, kind of this interesting play between the two. Yeah, and similarly with suits. And so many women who were suffragists did embrace these new kinds of clothing because, you know, they fit into just the practicality and the professionalism maybe that they wanted to be able to express in their appearance and self-presentation. We actually, we had a wonderful virtual program with Dr. Inav Rabinovich Fox, who works on women's fashion and the suffrage movement in this era generally. And she talked a lot about how suffragists really embraced pockets when they came into fashion around World War I in women's suits, having large pockets, sort of inspired by military fashions, which were influencing women's wear of the time. And, you know, suffragists' pockets were very strongly identified with them and embraced because of their practicality as well. Now, you have said that the new woman is actually a phrase that was coined, was it? Yeah, that's correct. The new woman was a phrase that a writer in 1894, who was a woman, coined to describe these new changes in women's roles during that era. And so so just to think about that, traditionally, ideals of femininity and women's roles are centered in the home, and this idea of the woman the woman's primary role being as the caretaker of the house, this domestic angel, or a mother who is, you know, raising and caring for children, those being her primary responsibilities. And so this idea of the new woman, as it came about, was the idea that women could pursue an identity and new opportunities beyond the home. So for some women, that might include a professional career. For some women, it might be higher education or an intellectual life participating in women's clubs. And for some women, it was involvement in social and political causes, things like the Settlement House Movement, which helped to orient new immigrants to American society, labor reform, and also, of course, the suffrage campaign. But, you know, something this exhibition does is give a broader context with focusing on the feminine side of fashion in this era and almost this kind of pull pull and tug back and forth between these very hyper-feminine styles and then these new menswear-inspired styles. And so I think a lot of women were, you know, they had options in how to style themselves. And I think these choices about self-presentation are really interesting because, you know, you see women who, who led activist causes or were defying expectations of their gender, who chose to dress in a very feminine manner and saw that as an advantage because, you know, it was something that could be used to subvert expectations, to, to show that you don't have to be afraid, that women who want more rights are unreasonable and trying to be masculine and take the place of men. I can be feminine too, and this is a new way to be feminine. But then certainly the suits and shirtwaists, just thinking about the difference between you know, wearing one of those dresses with this, if you're having the F-curve posture shaped by the corset and the cinched waist, the very full skirt, layers of petticoats, and then coming to the shirtwaist blouse or suit where you're, you have separates in your wardrobe. And these were even considered appropriate for sports like golfing or tennis or camping. You know, it certainly just would make you feel very different in terms of how you can move, how you're presenting yourself.
Now, this is not what you're doing in this exhibition, but also we wonder, these women, if they have daughters, how are they dressing their daughters? In the same way, or is there a whole different code for young women? That's a great question. Yeah, I haven't done as much work on girls' and children's fashion, but I would say that, you know, for girls, certainly this very feminine look is in vogue in the 1900s and 19-teens. Having large hair bows is something that's a fad for young girls, so kind of paralleling that intensive femininity that you see in women's fashion. And girls weren't necessarily wearing suits, but certainly shirtwaist blouses, especially for teenagers and older, as they started to dress more like adults, were something that young women would wear for school. And, and also the shirtwaist is really identified closely with the college student, as well as being kind of a uniform of what, what the typical college woman wears. Oh, and hats can be so wonderful. Tell us about hats that we might come to see. Definitely. Yeah, we have several different hats in the exhibition that give a little bit of a sense of what women were wearing. We have, so we have a boater hat, which is a menswear borrowing, you know, much more plain and simple. And then we have another set of hats that are much more, you know, also typical of women's fashion in this era, especially between 1900 and 1910, women's hats really grow very large and elaborate. And so we have one hat that's really large that has bright blue ostrich feathers on it, you know, that's quite, quite stunning. And, and also we're, we're displaying one of our hats, which is dated about 1915 to 20 and has floral trim. We're displaying it with a reproduction of a 1918-style face mask. You know, we thought it would be an interesting touch to include it, even though it, we made a reproduction. It's not actually from that era, just because it's in this period that we're talking about the new woman is, you know, about a century ago, and it's interesting to see that parallel in how people are having to dress then and now. Ah, yes. Pandemic then, pandemic now. Well, how can we see this? How long do we have to see it? So this exhibition will be on view through April 18th, and I think it's just, it's a really interesting way to get into you know, this period and look at a period of social change and kind of what are some of the similarities and differences from today. You know, today we might think about similar things. You mentioned our legislators, women wearing white in, in honor of the suffragists, as well as other leaders like Shirley Chisholm and the debates that happen today still about kind of professionalism and femininity in women's wardrobes, especially in the political arena. And the other thing I think is really powerful about the exhibition is just looking at these garments, you get a sense of the body, the physical presence of the person who wore it, and it's just it's something that's very personal and intimate, and in some cases, you know, you might feel a bit of distance just because it's so different from how women are expected to dress today. There are such different norms in place, but I think it also gives us a real feeling of empathy. We all wear clothing. We can all imagine what it might be like to, to live and work and just go about daily life in these kinds of garments. And so, you know, for me, I think that's something that's really interesting about fashion history and hopefully comes through in this exhibition, this sense of the personal and, and the physical as well. Clara McCree 
assistant curator at the Allentown Art Museum, speaking about the current exhibition, New Century, New Woman, that she curated, and it's on display through April 18th. For more information on the web, allentownartmuseum.org, allentownartmuseum.org. COVID-19 protocols are outlined on the website, masks are required, and there's an explanation of timed admission tickets. That is New Century, New Woman through April 18th at the Allentown Art Museum. For more information, allentownartmuseum.org. And while you're planning your trip, don't forget Rembrandt Revealed on display through May 2nd. That's Portrait of a Young Woman, recently confirmed as a work by the master. For more information on the web, allentownartmuseum.org.